uh, into the passage today, Hebrews chapter 4. No, not 4. That would be going backwards. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to finish chapter 6. Man, me and numbers, we just do not get along. Uh, We're going to finish chapter 6 off today. We're actually going to pick up in a passage uh, that we read last week just to maintain the context because uh, it's all connected. The author of Hebrews has taken an aside, if you will. He's kind of kind of diverted his teaching for just a moment, uh, and we looked at the first part of that last week, we'll look at the last part of it this week, and we'll need to start in verse 9 to really get the flow and the, and the shape of the context um, of that. As you're turning and kind of getting settled at Hebrews chapter 6, let me just remind you, the author has just made one of the strongest warnings, well definitely the strongest warning in the book, maybe possibly one of the strongest warnings in the whole of scripture, and we walked through that last week, and I told you last week, and I'll tell you again, I did not look forward, I do not ever look forward to sermons like last week, uh, because, well, it's just, that's not the easy passages to preach, right, um, but they are necessary, it's important for us to hear them, um, and, and, and so we did, we walked through that, and we applied it to our own lives, and, and we heard this very strong warning um, to, to, to ensure that, that we are not languishing in or stagnating in spiritual immaturity or or I would even suggest it another way that we don't achieve some status or some position of spiritual maturity and think that's enough I don't need to grow anymore and just begin to just decide I'm going to stay here and then move into this spiritual laziness or this dullness that the author calls out um, and, and 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 he is guarding his readers against that we as your pastors of this church would seek to guard you against that but then he closes with a passage of encouragement i can just tell you i was so thankful that we didn't have to stop on a heavy note of a warning against apostasy uh, but we're able to to see his encouragement of these people and that's where we're really going to pick it up today so so let's pray we'll seek the lord's just leading and guiding through this uh, and then we'll begin to walk through the passage father this is your word and we know that you intend to Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, point us in the way to go, uh, and, and, and really prepare and equip us for the good work that you have ahead of us. So I pray today that, Father, you would do your work by the power of your spirit through the working uh, and application of your word. I pray, Father, in my own heart and mind just to be settled and calm, to be, to be um, well, just to be honest to your word, to be able to handle it well, handle it rightly, that we might be blessed, encouraged, convicted, and, and just shown uh, the truth and, and able to, to live in light of that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, ch- ch- chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 9, begins this way. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not just is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's just take a minute and just stop there. So, so the author of Hebrews, he's just given this strong warning. And without diminishing that warning at all, he turns around to encourage his readers with this very pastoral, very loving, 
encouragement, to, to remind them, in your case, we, sh- we feel sure of better things. You are not the apostates I'm referring to is essentially what he's saying. You are not the people who have to worry about this, but there is a problem that you need to deal with. And if you languish here, you may end up here, and he doesn't want that for them. His desire is, is that they would continue to earnestly pursue Christ, to earnestly grow up and to know him more and more. And, and, and so in the same way that they're lacking ability to understand the deeper, more complex things of Christ, revealed a need for him to confront them. He has evidence here. We are sure of better things. He has evidence here that leads him to this place where he, he doesn't see them as a people who aren't saved or who are immediately in danger of apostasy. Rather, he points out, look at the fruit of your life. Look at the fruit of your faith pouring out into your life. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and, and, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. This is not some past work that you were doing once and quit doing. This is not something that you just flippantly did. This, this is a work that you loved and served the saints and you still do it. This is a continuing effort, a continuing work. And God's going to see that and God's going to respond to that. He's not going to overlook it. Because of the fruit of your faith, he says. He's confident that, that they are not apostate, that they aren't uh, uh, falling away, but that, that he longs for them to continue to grow, to continue to know. And so, and so uh, because we took such a close look at how that warning applied to our lives, I want us to make sure that we take a close look at how this encouragement applies directly to us as a church. Right Now, we didn't have time. It took an hour to work through this passage last Sunday. So I get to the end of it, and I'm already like, ah, I feel terrible for an hour. I'm going to hit this passage. I'm not going to deal with it completely and fully. But I know this week, and so if, you were, if a person was here last week and only heard the bad, <laughs> then, then not listening this week, you go and tell them, hey, Seth doesn't hate this church. He actually loves this church. And there's reason to believe that this is a good, solid, healthy church, right? There's reason to believe it in the same way that, that, that this author looks at this group of people that he's writing. We, your pastors, we know that there is evidence that demonstrates that we are not a group. That, oh, we are, we are a mess at times and we are still have places we can grow and mature and continue to, to grow and mature. We are not so, so, so naive to think that there is not great and good things going on in and among God's people in this church. Let me just be specific about some of these things. First and foremost, I would just point out a very repentant spirit that's in this church. In all of the comments that I received last week, in all the comments I received last week, not one was in anger. Who are you to talk to me that way? Right? Now, I'm not saying that no one heard it and didn't get angry and didn't feel somewhat some frustration. I'm not saying that didn't happen. But repeatedly, I received more feedback last, after last Sunday's sermon about how a person needed to hear that uh, I, I heard it not just from people that spoke directly to me, but people who spoke to people who spoke directly to me. Uh, and and the, the response was one of what appears to be genuine repentance, a tenderness towards seeing the honest truth said about you and recognizing, wait a minute, I, my priorities are off. I need to repent. I believe the lie. I need to believe the truth. I, I heard it repeatedly all week long. And, and, and this is not just a one-time thing. This has been 
the, the attitude of the heart of this church for, for years. Uh, back, um, the thing that comes to mind immediately, back several years ago, we had this family meeting where all the members, we got together and we, we did two things. Well, we did several things in that one night, but, but we had come off of a hard year. We had said goodbye to a lot of people and some, some things were, were revealed in that process of saying goodbye to, to a bunch of leaders and, and struggling to fill those leadership positions and, and even in my own heart, some sins were revealed. And so I stood before you and I, I, I admitted failures in leadership. And then I called the church to their failures in fellowship. And, and we just looked at one another. And the, again, this spirit of repentance. And we saw health grow. In fact, um, I won't call the person out, but the, I, I've had one person say that's changed my mind. And I now actually look forward to meetings like this because it was good. Right? Like that's... It's just demonstrating the repentant spirit of the people of this church. I think it's a beautiful thing that we get to see. We, get, we can be honest with one another. We don't walk in shame. We don't beat each other down. But we walk in repentance together towards the Lord. I think another thing that I think of over the course of this last year and the difficulties in gathering, and yet there's still this strong desire in less than perfect circumstances, very difficult, uncomfortable at times, conversations and, 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 and just finding out ways to be together. This church has fought to figure out how to continue together, together, to worship the Lord together, to gather together, right? I don't know if I said that right the first time. But, but that, 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 that has been the intent behind every conversation and struggle and frustration that has resulted from COVID lockdowns, at least among our people. That has been at the heart of every one of these conversations. And while we may not have all landed in the same place in the same perspective, the same desire was driving us. It was actually interesting because when it all started, I was in Africa trying to figure out how to get an, a fledgling church in this village to learn to gather, to begin gathering. I come home to lockdowns and now I have to try to figure out how to lead a church that we're told we can't gather because of this pandemic and at first, nobody understood what was happening. Nobody knew what was going on. And so everybody was like, okay, well, we'll figure this out. We'll, it, 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 it'll be all right. And then it begins to, to continue on, and it just became that much more difficult. But our, our, our desire to be in this time together, to come together on Sunday morning, to worship our God, to hear the preaching of the word, and to live as a result of that has been evident. And I praise God for that. I thank God for you, and I praise God for the heart he's given us as a church. As a church, a small church, of, if, if you compare us to the other churches in Springfield, the numbers are about, if you count everybody, not just membership, but if you count everybody in the church, we're, we run or we're, we're ministering to about 150-ish people. When we, we have about 100-ish adults that uh, participate in some way in the ministry. If we saw everybody at one time, we'd actually struggle Deal, putting everybody in seats in this room. It's just the reality of it. But a church that size and, and, and the ability or the desire and, and the participation that has, has been demonstrated in and through this church is, to me, phenomenal. There's two, two, two villages in, in West Africa, in Senegal, that have believers there and have been reached by the gospel because this church committed to go. And there's these fledgling churches that we're now seeking to see disciples raised up from just knowing the Lord to beginning to lead others in such a way that they know the Lord. And here we are, a church of just a few people across the world seeing churches planted. 
It's, to me, shocking, surprising. I think that it would be surprising to most people because most churches our size are just trying to figure out how to keep the lights on and keep things going. But your generosity and your desire to participate is evident. Another thing that through this last year, I think, has, has just demonstrated health and, and good things, evidence that we are not a bunch of, of, uh, uh, of apostates that just keep on pretending, is our community groups. Over and over last year, I, I listened to pastors who were struggling because their churches were so disconnected because of the lockdowns. And every time I talked to someone, every time I dealt with someone, in our church, I would hear how their community group was serving that need, how they were still able to feel connected and belong and have that sense of belonging because their community group had figured out some way to continue to be together, to continue to serve and love one another. I mentioned our group last week. In fact, I called our group out, if you will. I didn't intend to. The point was, in, as I mentioned my group last week, I meant to illustrate if my group is sitting down in front of me and they know we're going to have sermon discussion and they're, half of them are saying, well, I hadn't had a chance to listen to the sermon yet, then, then I know that that's a lot broader in the church, right? Now, maybe it's just my community group. But I, I would suspect that if we're not listening on Sunday morning, we still struggle with the priorities during the rest of the week. And it, it, it is what it is. But I, I wasn't calling them out because they're a bunch of losers. I just trying to illustrate that if it's true in my group, I'm certain it's true other places. However, I'm so proud of my group. I love that. I, the, the, the growth that we've seen in our group, the ability. It, we started off with Zoom meetings just like everybody else did. But then we made the commitment in our group. This is going to be our social circle. This is going to be the people that we gather with. And we, we began to get together. And we weren't wearing masks. And that may have made some people uncomfortable. That may have, but we had decided this is the group. I actually ended up getting COVID from my group. So thank you for that. <coughs> but now, now I've feel invisible so so that's not true i don't i'm just playing but but the reality is is that was the decisions we made that was the way that we continued to gather and and have intimate relationship and continue on knowing and serving and loving one another and and honestly over and over i heard from our people that my community group is taking care of that we're still together with people while i'm talking to other pastors and their people are hurting because their churches can't be together it's true our, our, our group, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's evidence of God's grace working out among us. And so I want you to hear this. As, as strong as last week's warning was, and as brief as the exhortation or encouragement at the end was, I want you to hear this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. You are God's people. And I love being among you. I love being your pastor. I, I, I love you. And, and alongside your other pastors, I think I can say this without doubt. We desire what this pastor desires. We want you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That we don't come to a place where, okay, we've arrived, and now we can sit down, kick back, and just relax. That, that, that we can, okay, well, we, we've seen this, this work done in Africa. We can just kick back and relax. I, 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 I'm mature enough. I have enough doctrinal understanding. I have enough that, that we just kick back and relax. Because we want you to, to have the full assurance of hope 
until the end, that, that you don't have this assurance at one moment and, and then at some other moment later in life be wondering what happened to that time of assurance. That you endure in assurance as you endure in faith with patience. That this is what we long for you. And this desire, this desire that this pastor shares, it, it, it's the very desire that, that prompted his strong warning of the church. But it's also the very desire that's going to help him, that's going to cause him to turn and say, but look at these promises. Look at the certainty of these promises. You won't want to quit because God's promises are certain. You're not going to want to give up because God's promises are so great. You're not going to want to give up because God has made these promises. And that's ultimately what he's saying. He says that we're certain of better things. God's done this work for, through you. He's not unjust. He's not going to overlook the fruit of your faith. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, so that you don't grow lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the promises God has made. And that every step of the way, you are certain when you get there, you're not wondering what he's going to say to you. That you are certain, that you are assured of the, of, of the day that you step into his presence. You're not worrying and wondering, is he going to say to me, well done and good, good and faithful servant, or I never knew you. I mean, what a terrible thing to carry. What a terrible burden to bear. Isn't it better to go into his presence knowing when I see him, when, when, when he speaks to me, it, it'll be words of, assure, of, of reward rather than words of condemnation. And so this desire is going to lead him to talk now about the certainty of these promises so long as we continue to endure in faith. It, it builds our assurance even further. So let's read them. He, he says, For since, because... These, of these promises, because of this full assurance of hope and the endurance of faith and patience, because of this just God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for a confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. You see the call is exactly the same as it has been the whole time. A call to faith, a call to hold fast, a call to endure in our professions and confessions of faith. It, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our world, our world is filled 
with disappointment of unfulfilled promise. It's filled with empty promises. It's no wonder people get tired of it and people, as we endure, we, we think, oh, God promised this thing and then it's supposed to happen immediately. We live in this, this world in which we push a button on a microwave and 15, minutes, or 15 seconds later we have hot food. We, we, we're hungry. We want, run over to the drive-thru and we order food. We don't even have to make it. The idea of putting together a feast in our day and age is to run to the store, buy the meat, buy the vegetables, buy the food, bring it home and cook it. It might take two might take three hours to prepare for something like a, a Thanksgiving meal. Not, 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 maybe it takes longer than that. I, I've never made a whole Thanksgiving meal. So if it does, you understand what I'm saying. It, it might take some work, but you didn't have to go hunt the turkey. You didn't have to go slaughter the cow. You didn't have to go knead the dough. You didn't have to wait for it to rise. You didn't have to do any of that because it's all just there. And we don't understand what it is to endure. We don't understand what it is to wait. We, we don't understand. We, we think, oh, well, I, I want it. it. It's there. I can have it. And so when we hear about God's promises, it's no wonder that we're told, having to be told over and over and over that this is a thing that we must endure and that we must wait for. We must trust will be fulfilled. Because even Abraham, even Abraham had to wait in patience with faith. Now, our world's filled with all these empty promises and, and unfulfilled promises. Advertisers all around us telling us, if you just had this thing, if you just had this stuff, if your life was just this way, well, how many people have bought the who's he, what's it that they're selling you and then, wait a minute, my life isn't really better. We grow up being told, find the right job, get the right career. I'm not suggesting that it's not important to have a career that you can actually commit to and do, and that you have the capability, capacity to do, desire to do. That, that's a good thing. This idea that if you get the right job and can identify as, the, as, as holding the right career, you I can't tell you the number of people I've sat with who got the right career, supposed right career, and then found out they don't like doing the right career and are wondering and feeling all skeptical about any other thing because now, well, wait, this was what I was supposed to do. And it turned out to be work. turned out to be toil. It didn't make me as happy as I thought it was going to make me. Every couple of years, we listen to politicians make all these promises about all these great things, how they're the answer to our problems. We just need them. How's that working out? The list goes on and on and on and on, and, and we buy these lies about, oh, this, this I, I know this is sin, but there's this seeming happiness on the other side of it. And it's not really going to hurt anybody else. It's not really going to be a problem for anybody else but, but me. We get into the sin and we get, often end up addicted or, or bound and enslaved again to these sins. And come to find out if they're hurting you, they are hurting others. And the happiness we thought it would bring us and give us is replaced with shame and guilt and doubt. It's no wonder that people get skeptical. 
no wonder that people begin to wonder, well, wait a minute. What's going on? I thought God had made all these promises. When when is he going to fulfill all these promises? The author of Hebrews wants us to see the certainty of God's promises, but he wants us to understand that the certainty of God's promises, while they're unquestionable, they may not be immediately fulfilled, and we are going to have to endure in faith with patience. And he comes to this passage not to, not to remove the burden or the, or the challenge of the warning, not to undermine the reality of our position and, and, and security and assurance in Christ, but to show us how and, and why it's necessary to endure in faith with patience as we wait on these promises to be fulfilled. And the first thing I would suggest to you, the first point that I would take out of this for us today is that with Jesus as our great forerunner, Christians have every confidence that God's promises will be fulfilled. Now, I didn't add this to to this point, but I would say it, it when he's ready to fulfill it, when the time is right according to his estimation to fulfill it. God has proven his faithfulness. He, he gives his people even greater reason to endure than just the fear of falling away. He gives his people greater reason to endure than just simply being afraid that they might unintentionally become apostate. And, and that's because his certainty or the certainty of his promises being fulfilled. He, he wants them to be assured. He wants them to know this is going to come to pass when I'm ready, when the time is right. When I've determined it's right to fulfill it. And so he makes these promises, better yet he keeps these promises. And and the author lays out or sets out Abraham as an example for us. You consider the promises made to Abraham. We're not going to read every passage. I'm going to speak, I'm I'm, going to list a bunch of them. I'm not going to read every passage. You can go back and look them up yourselves at some point. God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. You can read about it in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the specific place where he says to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. God promises that he's going to give Abraham, his people, his, his offspring, he's going to give them a land in Genesis 12, 7. You can read about that. This is going to be their land. They're going to have it. They're going to, they're, they're going to, it's going to belong to them. This, this land is going to be theirs. God promised Abraham that he would give him many offspring. And he, pulls, he, he brings him outside and he has him look up in the stars. It's Genesis 15, 5. He has him look up in the skies and he says, your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars are in the sky. How many stars are in the sky? I don't, I don't know. Can, can you count them? Do you know? I don't think you know. I, I, I don't think we can count them. We, we can count a few. But as soon as we begin to count these, we're going to lose count of those. God enters into covenant with Abraham, but, but Abraham at that time was, was, was put to sleep. He didn't even participate in the covenant agreement, and God puts him to sleep, and God, in, in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch, moves between these animals that had been cut apart and laid, the separate halves laid aside, and, and God passes between these, demonstrating that he himself is going to maintain and, and bear the weight and ensure that this covenant is fulfilled. That's Genesis 15 verses 7 through 20. God promises Abraham a son by his wife Sarah. Now he's already been promising him all along. He's been promising him offspring, as many as the stars in the sky, as 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 much as the sand on the the seashore. 
He's already been promising these offspring, but here he's going to promise him a son in Genesis 17, 15. Specifically, hey, you and your wife, your wife Sarah, Sarai at the time, her name is going to be changed to Sarah. She is going to have a child for you. And he's like, wait a minute. She's 90 years old. I'm 100 years old. How's that going to happen? God says, it's going to happen. And finally, the, the son is born. Isaac is born. Abraham is, is called after he's a young man. After Isaac is a young man, Abraham is called to sacrifice him on this place that God is going to show him on this mountaintop. Now you think about this. A man who had waited, and, and, and it's like 25 years from the first of God's promises to the time that he actually has his son by Sarah. It's like 25 years. Now imagine us having to wait for 25 years for something. The 25 years, he finally has his son, and then his son grows another, I don't know how old Isaac was exactly at this point. He's a, he's, he's a, he's a, a young man, um, and he's walking with his father. So, so maybe, maybe let's, just, let's just say 35 years after this first promise of having this child, and now you're told to go sacrifice this child that's been promised to you all along. Let's just say you weren't promised a child, and God still called you to sacrifice that child. That, that by itself is big enough, right? But there's all these other promises. There's all this other stuff that's associated with this child that, that Abraham is now called to sacrifice. And listen to what God says to him. Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall all, shall all the na- and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because Abraham, in faith, with patience, had waited, he's, he, he, he receives his son, and in continuing faith, in enduring faith, he continues to walk along, and God says, go sacrifice your son, and Abraham does it. He leads Isaac to the top of a mountain, and just as he is about to, to, to kill his son, just as about to as he take his life, God stops him, speaks out, says, hey, don't do it, and there's this ram in the thicket, and the Lord provides, and Abraham that day calls that place, the Lord will provide. There's this whole beautiful reality that happens, and God makes a promise that he swears by himself and upon himself, by myself I have sworn. All of the promises he had made to Abraham, he is his own guarantee. God had proven and continued to prove in his faithfulness to Abraham. And Abraham simply had to trust the Lord. And over and over, this is the example. But here in our passage in Hebrews, it's laid out for us to see. God's promises are guaranteed by his unchanging character. We see who God is. We see what God has done. We see what he's accomplished. And we know that God's promises will be fulfilled. He swears by himself. He doesn't doesn't have a higher court in the land. He doesn't have a higher law to point to. He swears by himself or upon himself. He he places his own character at stake. He says, I will 
fulfill these promises. And we see some of these character traits that, that demonstrate his faithfulness in this very text we're studying. Now we could go back and we could do a broad study of all of his attributes. But let's just look at what this passage teaches us about who God is. Let's step back up to verses, verses 9 through 12 where, where we're told in verse 10 that God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. What that means is that God is not wicked. He's not evil. He's not like, 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 other, like people. He's not going to see the fruits of your authentic, genuine faith, your love for the saints. He's not going to look at that and ignore it or, or overlook it and act as if it doesn't exist. He's so confident in their fruits, not because it's simply their fruits, but because the character of God is just. I mean, yeah, the fruits that, that, that we demonstrate, the, the evidence of our faith that, that, that's poured out in our life, it matters. It absolutely matters. But it matters most because God is actually just. And so when we call one another to look at the fruit of our life, to look at the fruit of one another's lives and be encouraged, it's not the fruit that's foremost the reason that gives it, it brings us encouragement. It's God's justice. It's His character. It's His justice that, that leads us to believe and be assured by the fact that, wait a minute, I'm more mature in my faith today. I can see the evidence of that in the way I live. But it's not me that gives me hope. It's God's justice that gives me hope as I see the fruit poured out in my, or, or expressed in my life. He goes on in, in verses 13 through 20. We can see that God is faithful. I've mentioned this a couple of times already. He made promises to Abraham. And what did he do with his promises to Abraham? He fulfilled them. Now, certainly there are promises that are yet to be fulfilled through and in Christ. There are promises to be fulfilled that, 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 that he hasn't completed all of the work he's promised to complete. Yes, there are promises that we are yet to inherit. But there are promises that we can look back into the Scripture, not just at Abraham, but across the Old Testament. We can see his promises made, and we can see his promises fulfilled. There's not a promise that he's made that he hasn't fulfilled that he just didn't fulfill because he didn't want to. There are promises yet to fulfill, but it's not because they won't be fulfilled. It's just not time yet. God is faithful. He does what he says. It's the assumption of, it's the position of, it's the, it's the perspective that we're given of God. He is faithful. God is merciful and gracious. This came out in a conversation I was having with someone earlier this week. See, look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That God doesn't have to meet us where we are. He doesn't have to meet us in our limited understanding of things. He doesn't have to prove himself to us in any way, but he does. He meets us. In our, in, in our limited understanding, he meets us in our limited perspective. He, he meets us in our, in our immaturity. And he says, hey, wait, I want you to know how trustworthy I am. And so this promise he's made, he gives another oath. And he's like, I'm going to ensure, I want you to know. I want you to be certain. I'm going to fulfill it. So he guarantees it with an oath. And he, it's almost as if, I, I, I think of this in terms of oftentimes when we speak to our children. Like, you have a lot higher understanding of things than your children do. Most of you do, right? Like most of us have a better understanding of how the world works than, than our four and five-year-olds do. And yet, 
we seek to communicate to them. We seek to meet them in that limited ability to understand and, and begin to explain and teach them how things work and, and how the world is. God has been doing that for us in Christ all along. He's merciful and gracious, and it's his desire that we have this assurance. And so what does he do? He makes a promise, and he tells us, hey, by the way, I'm going to fulfill that promise. I'm going to make sure that it's completed. I'm going to make sure that it's fulfilled. It's not your faithfulness that matters so much. It's my faithfulness. It's not your justice that matters so much. It's my justice. I'm going to do this. And he will. He's truthful. In verse 18, we see that he cannot lie. So, so, so that two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God doesn't lie. He doesn't say one thing and then do another. He doesn't make a promise and then not fulfill it. He tells the truth. His word is truth. His promises are guaranteed according to and by his unchanging character. This is who God is. And so when he says he is going to fulfill this promise, we have every reason to believe it. But also we see in this passage that God's promises are guaranteed by his unchanging purpose. So, so the confidence we have in God's promises being fulfilled, right? We, we have every confidence that God's promises will be fulfilled first by his unchanging character, but also by his unchanging purpose. Look here in verse, in, in, in verse um, 17 again. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Well, what is that purpose? What was it that he was promising to Abraham? He's promising Abraham that in, in him all nations would be blessed. He's promising Abraham that, that his, his offspring would, be, would number as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He's promising Abraham that his people would inherit a land. And certainly we see a near fulfillment. We see a near fulfillment in the nation of Israel. We see a near fulfillment in, in, in Isaac being born. And, and, and out of that, the, the nation of Israel coming to be in a physical way. But fast forward a little bit to Romans chapter 4 and you find out that our, our lineage and our relation to Abraham isn't based on blood, but on faith. That we're children of Abraham, we're, we belong to his family because we have faith like he had faith. But, but, but his promise doesn't wait to Abraham to begin being spoken. His promise is, you could track this promise all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where he makes a promise to the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He's going to, or you're going to bruise his head and and or you're going to bruise his heel and he's going to crush your head. So God promises to the serpent, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to defeat you. But his promise is so much more than just simply defeating the enemy. His promise is to redeem a people, to, to free a people from the rule of the serpent, the lies of the enemy. And we've seen that through, through, um, through Hebrews, is that, that in coming to Christ, we're freed from the, from the lies of death. This is the reality, this is what he's done, this is what he's been doing. We're going to see this break even further out when we get to Hebrews chapter 11 and we can see that his promises really begin taking shape all the way back at Abel. When we get to Hebrews 11 and we start studying this hall of faith or these, this list of names of people who have endured in faith with patience, the very first one mentioned is Abel. The second son of Adam and Eve, or at least the second son we know about, Adam and Eve 
who's killed by his brother because his offering to God was, was acceptable and Cain's wasn't. Cain becomes jealous and kills his brother, but, but Abel's testimony continues to be told. Abel's life continues to tell the story of how God is faithful and fulfills his promises. His blood continues to speak. But we see, not, not only have those promises begun being told, but, but they will be fulfilled. God is going to fulfill his promises because his purpose is to redeem a people to himself from this fallen world. And the, the whole story of the, of the scripture, start to finish, is that story. Dave just stood up here and read and prayed from Revelation. Because there's a point where, 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 where the promise of us being conquerors will actually be fulfilled. But we will stand in his presence. That the, that the heavens will open. The Lord will come down. And we will stand in his presence, and he will make all things new, and, 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 and death will be, be, be no more, and pain and tears will be wiped away, and, and here we'll be standing in his presence, having conquered sin and death. But not because we conquered sin and death, but because we trusted in the one who did conquer sin and death. And we step into this by, by faith. This is the reality, his, his, his unchanging purpose, his unchanging character. Give us all the reason in the world to believe in God's promises, but he goes one step further. So we have these two things, these two things ahead of us, the, the, the character and the purposes of God. But we have a third one to look at as well. That we have the benefit of looking back into history on, that, that those who have gone before us were waiting to see come to pass. And it says it in verse 19 is where we pick it up. But God's promises are guaranteed by his son, our forerunner and great high priest. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you can kind of see he, he stopped teaching about Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek before, and now he's bringing that back to the place where he's going to begin teaching about Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek again, but not before he shows us that Jesus and his role in that high priesthood as a great high priest is a, a sure, uh, let, me, let me get back and say it exactly, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He holds us secure. That's what anchors do. It, it, it's, it, it's not the strength of the ship or the ability of the ship to, to hold itself in place. It's the anchor that holds it. He is our anchor. And, and, and we're connected to him through faith. And it's not even the strength of our faith that matters, but the strength of the object of our faith that makes him our anchor. Even weak and immature faith is fruitful in that it secures us to the one who's gone behind the curtain, who's entered the most holy place and gone there as our forerunner, the one who went before us as our representative. He went making certain that we'd have access and, and ability to go in behind the curtain. Without him going in, we couldn't. He guarantees his promises by his son. And he calls us to trust in him and him alone. He's gone where we couldn't, and he's given us access to enter in. He is our forerunner. 
He is the one that's gone before as our representative and makes a way for us to follow him. There's, you go back, and, 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 and it's another perspective that's been being built of Jesus all the way through, that he is the captain or the pioneer, the first of our, of our faith, that he's the one that makes it possible, that he's the author and foundation of our salvation. This is the work that he has accomplished. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And God's promise is guaranteed in him. So we look at God's character and we see, yes, he's trustworthy, he's faithful. He's always going to do what he says he's going to do. We look at his purpose and we say, yes, that's his purpose is to redeem people. And I just happen to be one of, the, be, be, be one of these blessed people. You just happen to be one of these blessed people. We are able to enjoy this, not because we figured it out and done the right things and avoided apostasy ourselves, but because he, Jesus Christ, is our anchor. He is our steadfast hope. He is the certainty of our salvation. With Jesus as our great forerunner, we have every confidence that God will fulfill his promise. And with Jesus as our great forerunner, Christians have every reason to endure in faith with patience. We have every reason to do the very thing he's calling us to do. To hold fast to the hope set before us. It's a difficult thing because we live in a world that's constantly holding other things up and saying, just, just take this thing, have this thing, just run after this purpose or after this, this ideal or, or this lifestyle. Or We're constantly being presented with substitutes. And the author of Hebrews is saying, absolutely not. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast your profession with patience. And, and, and here's, the, here's the crazy thing about it. So, so I think if you think back on Abraham's life, you're not going to think, if you go back and read on Abraham's life and you read those passages through, you're not going to think immediately. I don't think your first estimation is going to be, wow, he was really patient and he was perfectly faithful, right? Like, I don't think that's going to be the immediate response or the immediate thought about, how Abraham did in his faith and in his patience. He actually got tired of waiting, took matters into his own hands. He has a son by his wife's handmaiden. I'm supposed to have a son, but that's not the son, I promised you. Here's the thing, is that in all, in all that he did, in all the ways that he stumbled, Abraham continued to trust the Lord. It wasn't his perfect faith. It wasn't his perfect performance. It wasn't the strength of his faith. But he never ceased trusting the Lord. In fact, we get to see his faith grow in time because he starts off struggling with this, this idea of what, what the Lord is doing and trusting the Lord. Is it really going to happen? Like, I don't have any children. How is this going to come to pass? And having these questions to the point where he goes into places like Egypt and he lies about who his wife is because he's afraid that something's going to happen and that he's going to be harmed because... Well, his wife is beautiful to the point where he's willing to sacrifice his son on a mountaintop, the promised son, because his wife or because he trusts the Lord so much, he's going to sacrifice his son because God had called him to. So he grows, he endures in faith, his faith grows stronger. And did he do it patiently, perfectly patient? Was he perfectly patient in waiting? No. 
I don't think that's what the scripture would present. I don't necessarily think, I don't think that's what the author is teaching us here. But God didn't fulfill his promise before he was ready. Still waiting on the Lord. And you can want and you can demand and you can kick and fight and try to make your own way. And you can try to convince the Lord the time is now. Fulfill your promise. I asked this thing. You're supposed to do it. You just give it to me now. This is what I want. But you're still going to be waiting on the Lord. And we're called with patience to endure in faith. So don't, don't, don't squander your access to God's truth that reveals his character, that reveals his purpose. Don't, don't squander your, God's truth that shows us Jesus at every turn. Don't be deceived by the lies of the enemy and the, and the sins that a fallen world presents as some good and alternative life. Don't, don't put your hope in promises that ultimately cannot and will not be fulfilled. Look at Jesus. Hold fast. Hold fast to him. He is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Let's pray.